When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. It's Lindsay. I wanted to let everyone know that I won't be on the podcast moving forward. I've just loved hosting the podcast these past few years, and I've really enjoyed getting to know our listeners through emails and social media. You all definitely became really great friends and a great quilting community to me, and I'll miss you all. But you're in very good hands with the rest of my coworkers. I know they're going to do a great job on the podcast. So please continue listening in and supporting American Patchwork and Quilting. They have really exciting things happening this year, and I just can't wait to follow along. Everyone, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Beth, and you've heard my voice on the podcast before. I'll be taking over as the new host, so you'll be hearing a lot more from me. We definitely have some big shoes to fill, though. Lindsay did an amazing job with the podcast, and her voice will be so missed in this space. Thank you so much for all your hard work on the podcast, Lindsay. Now, on to today's show. A while back, Lindsay put out a request for any quilting questions our listeners had, so the team is here today to answer some questions. All right, this is Elizabeth, and we actually had two questions specific about binding. Um, and this is such an interesting topic because so many people have different preferences for binding. Um, there are several different methods of sewing binding, and you can finish by hand or by machine. So Renee asks, do you sew the binding to the front or back of the quilt first? Is there a right or wrong way? Well, Renee, thank you so much for your question. Um, there was really no right or wrong way when it comes to attaching your binding, and it really just comes down to personal preference and the look that you like the best. I've personally always sewn the binding to the front of my quilt, turned it around to the back, and then hand-stitched the binding. This way, the front of the quilt will look nice and neat, but it does mean there's a lot of hand-stitching to do, which I don't mind. I find that hand stitching is a relaxing and it's the perfect project for me to sit and stitch while watching TV. I also love sitting outside on a nice day and hand stitching my binding. When you use this technique, no stitching will be visible on either the front or the back. So some people do prefer this look. And this is Doris. Um, I did recently finish a baby quilt with a scalloped edge binding on it that I'd hand stitched to the back, but I typically machine stitched my binding to finish it. The technique I use is to sew your binding onto the back, turn the binding to the front, and then I machine stitch the binding to the front with a very small top stitch, about at 1 16th of an inch away from the edge of the binding. This way you can watch that binding edge on the front and make sure you get a really nice stitch exactly where you want it. Keep in mind with this technique that you'll see the stitching on both the front and the back, so choose your thread accordingly. I typically match the binding as well as possible with the top thread and for the bobbin thread I try to match the backing because that seam is going to show up next to the binding on the back so it will be against your backing fabric. 
This is Beth, and there are some specialty feet that can help you with this. So check and see what you might have available for your sewing machine. But I've used a bi-level foot um, or an edge stitch foot, and those can be really helpful because that gets the stitching right along the edge of that binding. So this is a great technique for getting the binding done fast. And a lot of quilters prefer machine finishing binding for quilts they know will be used and washed a lot like baby quilts because the binding is a lot more secure since it's secured by machine. And you can even use decorative stitches to add another fun design element to your quilt. I think the best way to determine what you like is to try a couple different techniques. Placemats or table runners are great places to experiment before committing to an entire quilt. And here's our other binding question, and it's from Belle. She asks, why do some people like two and a half inch wide binding strips and others like two and a quarter inch strips? I always love to hear the reasonings. Well, Belle, it really depends on the project. I typically use two and a half inch wide binding for my quilts, but I have used two inch binding for small projects like coasters or table runners where I don't want a lot of bulk. If you are using multiple layers of batting, very thick batting, or a minky or cuddle back, you'll likely need the full two and a half inch width so it wraps fully around the quilt and covers the stitching line used to sew the binding on. For quilts with thinner batting, you could likely do a thinner strip. As in the previous answer where we were talking about binding, it really comes down to personal preference and the look you prefer. I have noticed with a two and a half inch binding sewing to the front and bringing it to the back, you end up with a thicker reveal of binding on the back so it looks a little chunkier. We asked our Facebook fans and the results were definitely mixed, which just goes to show you how many different ways you can do it. Generally speaking, here's what our fans thought. Using a wider binding, two and a half inches, two and three quarters, or even larger, is a bit easier to work with and ensures you cover the stitching line. You don't have to pull it so tight, so several people mentioned it's easier on their hands. Those that prefer the look of a tight, narrow border use a skinnier binding, so two and a quarter, two and an eighth, those seem to be the most popular sizes. Several people also mentioned that if they're entering quilts and shows, the judges seem to like this look better too. When stitching the binding first to the back and bringing it to the front, the skinnier binding can ensure points or other elements on the front don't get hidden in the binding. But a lot of people said they use two and a half inch binding because that's what they've always done or what they were taught. Two and a half inches is a nice standard size, especially with pre-cut strips being so widely available. I personally save two and a half inch scrap strips, so sometimes I can piece together a binding from my scrap bin and then they're ready to go with no trimming. But it's a good reminder that we can experiment and switch up techniques to see what we like best. I'm definitely going to try two and a quarter inch binding on my next quilt. The next question comes from Claire in Toronto, Canada. She says, within the next two years, I'm planning to buy a small RV and tour around North America to visit some regional quilt shows. I know this idea is going to involve lots of driving, but I'm hoping to turn the trips into quote unquote, lazy quilty road trips. Without a doubt, the RV will be equipped with my sewing machine and I intend to quilt in various scenic parks along the way. So here's my question. Could you or your listeners recommend some quilt show destinations that might dovetail into other quilt shows? 
I'd be happy to drive 200 to 300 miles within the days between the shows. Because I'm from more northern parts, I think my dates would be best in the warmer weather, so June through October. Otherwise, depending on the locations, I might be winter camping. However, I'm not opposed to going south for a trip so long as the temps are reasonable. Thanks very much, and I just love your podcast, Claire. Well, Claire, that sounds like an amazing way to see North America, and quilting in your RV at national parks sounds like the dream. (laughs) It also sounds like a lot of driving and coordination, but we have some resources to help you make your planning a bit easier. We have a list of quilt shows in the U.S. on our website. Currently, they're all listed for 2023 shows, but these shows are generally around the same time each year, so hopefully it will still be um, useful information for you in the next few years. There are quite a few in September in the Midwest, and we will be sure to put links to everything in the show notes. We also have lists of barn quilt trails for each state, along with quilt museums, which could be fun to add to your schedule if you have time. In the June 2023 issue of American Patchwork and Quilting, we've also sprinkled in some fun quilty travel tips throughout the pages of the magazine. These could be an additional resource to help with your travel planning. Be sure to take some of your finished quilts with you on your travels so you can photograph them in beautiful scenic locations. And be sure to also download lots of entertaining podcasts to help those miles fly by on the road. We hope this was helpful and that your trip goes well and you have a ton of fun. We're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be back with more questions and answers. Welcome back. We had several questions about specific products for quilting or storage, and our team all added some recommendations. Carol Cash wrote in that she doesn't think that she's ever heard the topic of straight pins discussed and what do quilters prefer different types for different jobs. There are so many types to choose from and it can be confusing. Thanks for all the good work that you do. Well, I know I've always used the flower head pins, but I feel like maybe they aren't piercing the fabric as well. So I'd love to try something new. What does everyone else like? Yeah, this is Elizabeth and my default used to always be the flower pins just because they were what I had lying around and kind of what I used when I first started quilting. But I recently switched to fine glass head pins after borrowing some from my mom at a quilt retreat. I found that these fine glass head pins really slid through the fabric um, like butter, basically. (laughs) And I am guilty of stitching over my pins. And I found that the glass head pins made stitching over them a breeze because they were so thin. Um, Plus, the glass head pins are heat resistant, unlike plastic head pins, which is handy in case you ever need to iron over them. And this is Doris. Two thumbs up for the glass head pins. I also use fork pins as much as I do straight pins. They work great for nesting seams and especially when joining rows, uh, blocks to the next row. It's great for um, putting them together at the seam point with a fork pin before sewing. Oh, I just got some fork pins for Christmas. Um, I haven't experimented with them much, but I've heard quilters rave about how helpful they are for improving accuracy. So a fork pin, if you haven't seen it, is actually a double-sided pin. So you can kind of put one side on each side of a seam to really hold that in place. Uh, We also asked our Facebook fans, and here are some other recommendations. So several people recommended magic pins because they are sharp, fine, and easy to grab. 
And our coworker, Allison, really likes the Dritz Easy Grasp pins for the same reason. So we'll link to some of the recommended pins in the show notes if you want to check those out. This is Beth and Ellie from Palm Coast, Florida wrote in, and she has a question about sewing machine needles. So she says, when I first learned to quilt from a class, we were introduced to quilting needles like 70, 10, 80, 20, 90, 14. However, over the years, I hear and or read about top stitch needles. Can you please explain when it's appropriate to use a top stitch needle versus regular quilting needles? Thank you. Hi, Ellie. First, I want to quickly recap what the numbers on a needle mean. The reason there are two numbers is the top number is the metric European size and the bottom number is the American sizing. But no matter which number you're looking at, the larger the number, the larger the needle. So a fine needle will have a smaller number. 60 over 8 is the finest available. And thicker needles will have a larger number. So that would be a 120 over 19. And we typically recommend quilting needles for most quilting tasks since they are made specifically for quilting. The needle is slightly tapered to penetrate the fabrics easily and help eliminate skipped stitches. And the shape of the point minimizes damage to quilting fabric. Schmetz recommends size 75 for piecing and works great with 50 weight threads and a size 90 for heavier, plain, or variegated 40 weight threads for quilting. One other needle you might consider for piecing would be a Microtex needle. This is a needle with a very sharp and slim point, which can be helpful in getting perfectly straight stitches, which is always good for accuracy. This type of needle can be especially helpful for batik fabrics as they have a tighter weave and can be just a little trickier to sew through. But because the point is finer, you will need to change this needle more often. A top stitch needle has a larger eye, so that can be used with heavier fabric and thicker threads. These needles are also on the larger side, so you might find they leave larger holes in your fabric, which is great for top stitching and going through several layers of fabric, but maybe not the best for quilting or piecing. And don't forget, it's recommended to change your needle after eight hours of sewing. It's an easy way to make sure you're getting the best stitching out of your sewing machine. Lisa wrote in this question about storage solutions. So she said she's looking for a good storage solution for scissors, rotary cutters, smaller rulers, etc., to keep on or near the cutting table. So here are some ideas. A utensil caddy is a great option for those smaller items since typically one side has dividers, which are perfect for scissors and rotary cutters, and then one side is full length for small rulers. And they usually have a convenient handle too, so that makes it super easy to move around your space. A coffee mug tree can be used to hang scissors and rotary cutters and takes advantage of vertical space so there's a smaller footprint on your table. I use a small file sorter to store my small rulers. Check office supply stores for this type of item. Speaking of office supplies, a desk organizer that has multiple compartments would work well too. This could take up a lot of space on your table though, so just be sure to check dimensions. Think of ways to use the side of your cutting table as well. I prefer my cutting table top to be free of clutter, so I have several magnetic baskets attached to the flat metal support leg of my cutting table, and that's where I store my rotary cutter and small scissors. That way they aren't on the surface of my table, but are easy to access right on the side. 
Think of other ways you could use the side of your cutting table as well if magnets aren't an option. So using small screw-in cup hooks or 3M hooks could hang these items close by too. Hi, this is Doris. Um, if you're like me and you have a higher cutting table, mine is like counter height, so 36 inches, I think it is. Um, I have uh, edges under it. It's not a counter, it is a table. So I have space underneath that I roll one of those little metal three-tier carts um, like they're popular um, at Ikea and I think Container Store has some and Target sells them. Um, it's three tiers and I store all of my things in there. I store a little extra iron, like a travel size iron in there. I store all of my pens and pencils and cutters and um, little basting glue sticks and things like that all go in that cart and it just slides under the edge of my table. It looks great. Yeah, that's a great solution too, especially I love things that are on wheels because you can just move right. them around wherever you need them. Um, yeah, and so this is Elizabeth and I have a wall next to my cutting table, which is a great space to store things vertically. So once again, I love to keep things off of my table and within handy reach though on the wall. If you have a wall near your cutting table, a solution like a pegboard could be a great option for you. Um, I went a little creative with my vertical storage and I upcycled the springs from a baby crib to make a vintage inspired, you know, kind of pegboard system um, in my personal sewing room. It hangs on the wall and I use S hooks to hang scissors, rotary cutters and rulers from this. Um, and they just hang right there on the metal rungs. And I also love it because it's metal. I can use magnets to attach patterns and artwork to the frame. It's a bit quirky, but I love that it's both a statement piece in the room and is also super functional. You could easily make a statement piece out of an inexpensive pegboard by painting it a fun color, or you could even frame it with pieces of wood trim. I've also had good luck finding storage solutions in unlikely places like the kitchen aisles of the container store or the bathroom section of Target. Lazy Susans, Silverware Caddies, and Mail Organization Systems can all find a new purpose in your sewing room if you just think outside of the box. Hopefully some of these suggestions inspire you and we'll be sure to link some products in the show notes so you can see if any of these work for you. Next, we had a couple questions about color bleeding and cleaning quilts. Doris will be answering these. Wanda Stevens writes, I have a question that I'm hoping I can find a good answer to. The Christmas quilt I gifted my daughter a few years ago bled during the wash. She used color catchers and washed it in cold water. She said this was the third or fourth time she's washed it, but it's the first time it has bled. She's washed it again with more color catchers, but it hasn't helped. Has anyone experienced this and what's the best way to treat the quilt to remove the color? One suggestion online was to soak it in a bathtub with hot water and Dawn, but I'm reluctant to use hot water. Any experience with this situation would be greatly appreciated. Well, Wanda, I feel your pain because I do have experience with this situation. Uh, it happened to two of my quilts last year in the course of about a three or four week period. And I can tell you that discovering upon taking your quilt out of the washer that color migration has occurred is gut-wrenching. I would suggest the method you found online, soak the affected quilt in a clean tub with hot water Dawn Ultra dish soap and lots of color catchers, then rinse. Keep repeating this process until the water is clear. If your bleed is concentrated in any area, make a solution of two parts hydrogen peroxide and one part Dawn Ultra and spray directly on the concentrated areas to pre-soak. 
It does take a little courage to drench your lovely quilt into a tub of hot water, but it won't ruin your quilt. Some people have found success using OxyClean or Sithropol as well and soaking it in a hot water with that. Even after all of this, you may still see some signs of bleeding, but it should be reduced by a lot, if not completely gone. To avoid color bleed and color migration in the future, we recommend, if possible, to make your first wash of any quilt a hand wash. Always include three to five shout color catchers when laundering a quilt and use a top loading washing machine. Ashley writes, while looking through my grandmother's many quilts after her passing, I discovered that the majority have quite a bit of mildew growth. These quilts are so beautiful and most are hand pieced and quilted. The thought of discarding any of them makes me sick, but I need to know if there is a way to bring them into my home safely. I would appreciate your advice on how to thoroughly clean my grandmother's quilts without ruining her work. Thank you for your show. Your grandmother's quilts are definitely a treasure worth saving. First of all, you'll want to use a soft bristle brush to scrape away as much of the mold spores as possible. Do this outdoors so the spores do not spread inside the home. Mix a solution of equal parts white vinegar and water and spray the affected areas. Allow the solution to sit on the mold for at least 20 minutes before laundering. Then launder the quilt with color safe bleach and add a cup of white vinegar to the wash during the rinse cycle. Hang the quilt outside if possible to dry in the sunlight. If any of the quilts have unstable fabrics, such as bare threads, worn holes, or frayed edges, you can use this same cleaning method, but you should hand wash the quilt after soaking it with the solution as any agitation can make those worn areas worse. We're gonna take another ad break, but stay tuned for more of your questions. We're back with more of your questions. Listener Sue Carter says, First, this podcast is my favorite part of the week. Thanks, Sue. We appreciate that. My question is, I often hear reference of quilts being a modern, traditional, vintage, heritage, etc. type of style. Can you explain more about what makes a quilt or technique fall into different types? Is it type of fabric, pattern? Thanks again to you and all your staff. I think this issue, Sue, um, is common, especially to new quilters. There's a general rule of thumb that an antique is over a hundred years old. Therefore, a vintage quilt is an old quilt in the sense of from a previous generation, older than 25 years, but less than a hundred years. The term traditional typically refers to blocks in the public domain. Think of those documented in Barbara Brockman's Encyclopedia of Pieced Quilt Patterns and quilts that typically rely on a grid of regularly repeating designs and a symmetrical layout. The fabrics used can sometimes determine whether a quilt is traditional. For example, a flying geese quilt made in 1930s reproduction fabrics could be called a traditional quilt, but the same flying geese quilt might be in, in bright colors and bold prints might look completely modern. Often quilts referred to as modern will have large expanses of negative space and may include improvisational piecing and asymmetrical layouts. Yeah, and this is Beth. And when we were picking blocks for the Blast from the Past mystery sampler, we were pouring through our archives to select one block from each year. Going back 30 years, I really expected to find some that looked really dated, but it was really surprising how classic the blocks were. And honestly, the photography was maybe more what made the quilts look dated since the furniture and decor gave away the time frame of the quilt, more so than the quilt itself. 
So even if the quilt looked more traditional in its original state, once we remade them, they really looked modern since we were using current fabric lines. So to me, I feel like it's a matter of the fabric you use that makes a quilt more traditional or modern. For the past few years, we've sponsored a challenge at QuiltCon, which is a convention for modern quilters. And we challenged quilters to put a modern twist on a more traditional block. And I'm always amazed how a block can be made to look so different just by making some fabric scale or technique changes. Yeah, this is Elizabeth, and I completely agree with both of you. Trying to define modern versus traditional quilting can be so tricky, and it's really subjective based on personal preferences. I do think that color plays a huge part. And for example, I kind of see a lot of modern quilters using bright, solid fabrics. However, so do many Amish and Amish-inspired quilts, which I would typically define as quote-unquote traditional. So for every stereotype, there are examples that break those molds. And what I love about quilting is its rich history and that quilters of today are still inspired by the skills and creativity of past generations. Thank you so much for that question. This is Doris, and this question comes from Wendy in Shoshone, Idaho. She writes, I am working on a Hawaiian sampler quilt, and someday it will be ready to quilt. The appliques clearly need hand quilting to define the texture of the flowers, the stems, leaves, and the sea animals, but all of the echo quilting around the appliques would take me forever by hand, so I want to use my echo quilt foot to do it on my machine. Will I be arrested by the quilt police? After years of hand sewing the 18 applique blocks, I don't want to ruin my quilt, but I want to finish it before I die. What is your advice? Wendy, I completely understand this dilemma. I have a hand pieced and hand applique quilt that I am debating whether I have the time to hand quilt. However, unless you plan to enter your quilt into a judged quilt show, particularly on the national level, I wouldn't worry about the so-called quilt police. If you think you'll be just as happy with it being echo quilted by machine as you would seeing it hand quilted, then go for it and enjoy admiring your finished quilt. If you decide you really want to see it hand quilted, ask at your local quilt shop or ask your other quilting friends if they know of a quilting group in your area that hand quilts around a frame for other people. This is Elizabeth and the next question comes from Christy in Idaho. She says, I recently inherited a large amount of double-sided fusibles, but I heard lately that they have a limited shelf life. Do you have any ideas for creative ways to use it? I have plans for an applique quilt, but I am desperate for other ideas since I'd hate to waste it. Well, Christy, this is such a great question. It is true that some fusibles do have a shelf life and can lose some of their effectiveness over time. Your climate and how well you store your fusibles can also shorten or extend its shelf life. It's recommended that you store fusibles and other adhesives at room temperature and avoid direct sunlight when possible. Besides applique, I love to use double-sided fusibles for craft and decor projects. You could make an adorable double-sided fabric banner for special occasions or just to add a pop of color to your sewing space. I have a fabric banner hanging in my office and it's such an easy project that adds an instant pop of color to my space. After using double-sided fusible to create the pennant shapes out of fabric, you can then sew the pennants in between layers of either long binding or bias tape. 
Double-sided fusible is also an easy way to personalize pillows and tote bags with monograms. We'll be sure to link some additional project ideas that use double-sided fusible in the show notes. This is Beth and Greg asked if readers can submit quilt patterns for publication, and if so, where they could find the details to do that. And yes, we are always looking for new designers and quilts. So you can email us your submission at submissions at bhgcrafts.com. So here's what we're looking for. So we want you to give us a good idea of what you have in mind. The quilt doesn't have to be finished. And if it's still in the idea phase, a sketch or computer drawing is great. Let us know what fabrics and colors you plan to use or indicate if the project will be scrappy. If the quilt is already constructed, then you can send both detail and overall photos to us. Send along any details about quilt size, techniques used, and any special tools needed. One final note, projects must be original and never before published. I'll repeat that email address again. It's submissions at bhgcrafts.com, and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Happy designing! All right, our next question comes from Stacy, and she's asking for any advice we have on how to square up a quilt top. So after quilting, some parts of your quilt might end up stretching a bit, so you find your quilt isn't really square anymore. So here are some tips we have for how to square up your quilt. I would recommend working on the largest table you can find, especially if you are trying to square up a large quilt. I personally don't have a large cutting table in my house, so I typically set up a card table next to my kitchen table to help support the weight of the rest of the quilt. And I also think this is a great time to change to a fresh blade in your rotary cutter since you are cutting through multiple layers of fabric and batting. This way you get a nice clean edge. Just be sure you don't try squaring up your quilt with two blades inserted on your rotary cutter. I accidentally made this mistake on my last quilt on my last quilt retreat and I just could not figure out why the edges of my quilt were so wonky and why I was creating such a mess. I'm sure you both remember this because it happened at our staff quilt retreat. I still can't believe your rotary cutter worked with two blades in it. I know it was pretty crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I also don't have a very big table so I've used a large cutting mat on the floor before too. It's not probably the best on your knees but sometimes you have to improvise. And this is Doris. This is a hard thing to describe online, but we're, uh, sorry, verbally, but we're going to try our best without images. Um, Once you do have your surface set up for trimming, you'll want to position a large acrylic square ruler, whatever is the biggest square that you have, um, in one corner of your quilt, aligning the adjacent or perpendicular edges of the ruler with adjacent edges of the quilt top. If your quilt has a border, you can use the seam lines of the border as a guide by aligning them with lines on the ruler. For example, if you have three and a half inch borders, you can line up the border seam with the measurement on your ruler, and when it's aligned, trim the excess fabric and batting from the quilt. Make sure you have fabric all the way to the edge of the portion covered by your ruler, though. And you may have to shift the quilt a little bit under the ruler, like tug on certain areas to get that edge straight, um, but it will balance out in the end. Yeah, that's the nice thing about borders. You can even you can even the quilt out and make it square by taking off a little bit of the border. If you have a design going all the way to the edge of your quilt, you can't cut any extra off since you'll be cutting off part of those quilt block points. 
I have done this too. So if maybe my original border was four and a half inches, you know, to even it all up, I trimmed just everything to a four and a quarter inch border. So I try not to trim too much off though. It can end up looking out of proportion with your top if you make it too skinny. That's a good point, Beth. You do want to make sure that you keep your proportions uh, correct. Once you're happy that you've got that corner um, lined up and trimmed where you want it, um, keep the corner ruler, acrylic ruler there, the square, and take one of your longer rulers and butt that up against the edge of the square ruler to align the long edge of the quilt top um, and continue your cutting from there. So use your rotary cutter and cut away the batting and backing that extends beyond the quilt top edge. Reposition the ruler and cutting mat as you need to, to trim all the way around the quilt. The corners are really the most important part. So make sure that those are square to begin with. Um, and that really just ensures that the binding goes on well. This can be really tricky. So we see a lot of quilts that come into our offices for the magazine to photograph and they aren't all perfectly square. Um, just so you know, even professional quilt designers struggle with squaring up their quilts. So just know that you're not alone in this struggle. Thanks to all our listeners that sent in questions. We had so much fun answering them. And before I sign off today, I wanted to invite you to join in our upcoming quilt along. We're going to be making Scrappy Celebration designed by Lisa Alexander, which is the quilt on the cover of the April issue of American Patchwork and Quilting. This is a super scrappy quilt with a large variety of blocks, and it's going to be so much fun. We're starting February 20th and stitching for eight weeks to get this quilt top completed. We have a fun bonus too. The Electric Quilt Company has the project as a free download for EQ8. So if you have this software already, you can download the project to help choose your fabrics and see what it looks like before you start cutting. And if you don't have the software, Electric Quilt is offering a 25% discount on purchasing it. Go to allpeoplequilt.com and search Scrappy Celebration to find the page with all the details or check the show notes for that link. On that website, you'll find the materials list, the schedule, and information about joining our private Facebook group so you can share your progress. We also have the link there to the Electric Quilt website so you can get that download or the discount. We are so excited to make this quilt and hope you'll quilt along with us. Until next week, stay quilty, friends.